Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. It's Curious City, where we take your questions about Chicago and the region and investigate, report, explore from WBEZ. Hey, Jesse Dukes here, Curious City's audio producer. Today, we're bringing you an architecture story we did a few years ago. It all started with this question. Uh, My name's Tom Cole, Curious Citizen. So my question was about the handful of buildings I've noticed in the Chicago Loop that essentially have no doors and no windows, and they're sort of just mixed in across the landscape with other buildings, and I was wondering why they're there and what's inside of them. Tom has three buildings in mind, and they all look really different. He suspects they have something in common. Specifically, they house some kind of utility. And he's right. We call them infrastructure buildings. They provide electricity, heat, cooling, phone services... To learn more about the specifics of these buildings, we got help from Jen Masingarb, who at the time worked for the Chicago Architecture Center. Jen started our story by explaining why she finds this kind of building so fascinating. Well, think about the dilemma that architects wrestle with when designing utility or infrastructure buildings. They're dealing with gritty machinery, pipes, wires, stuff that people find ugly, right? But at the same time, this infrastructure needs to sit right near hotels, retail, offices, places that are supposed to be beautiful. Well, I guess we'll get a chance to see how architects tackle that dilemma. Tom picked out three different buildings. We've done some research, and we're going to visit each one and talk about what we learned. Our first building is across the street from the Daily Center downtown. It's tiny, clad in pale limestone, shiny black granite, very art deco, surrounded by taller, more contemporary structures. When we get there, Tom says he's known about this building since he was little. And always kind of noticed the contrast of this solitary closed-off building being directly opposite Daly Plaza, where we used to, you know, play on the Picasso as kids. From an early point, I learned that this had something to do with ComEd. Tom's right. A little reporting reveals the building is owned by Commonwealth Edison, the electric utility and they won't talk about it or give us a tour for security reasons. But there's a sculpture above the doorway that hints as to what's inside. Uh, This bas-relief panel of a very stylized kind of superhero-looking guy, and underneath you see sort of those little houses of the city and then some skyscrapers in the background. To me, he looks sort of maybe Egyptian or Incan. He's got got a stone loincloth, and uh, he's holding lightning bolts. Lightning bolts, yep capturing the energy of the city. Hint, hint. Turns out it's a power substation. It takes high-voltage electricity from power plants and converts it to a lower voltage the nearby buildings can use. So I'm wondering if those transformers that are inside of here, is this exactly the same thing that you see, like, sitting out on the grass with a chain-link fence around it? Yes, I've seen pictures. It's exactly like, it's like they just, like a a sky crane helicopter just dropped this on top of one of those things you see with the, you know, the chain-link fence and the danger high-voltage signs. Substations are all over, and yes, often the equipment is out in the open. But Common needed their substation in this fancy theater district where nobody wanted to see it. So they hired the architecture firm of Halliburton Root to design a new building as beautiful as its neighbors. 
They're the same firm that designed high-end Art Deco buildings like the Board of Trade and the Palmolive building. We show Tom an original sketch of the building, which shows glamorous theatergoers in front of an enormous door. Uh, there was a door here. It also has recessed show windows for displaying, quote, electrical products, unquote. The door and windows have since been walled off with granite and limestone. It's, it's still a very nice building, but having seen it with the doors and the glass, it's so much actually better with the doorway and the glass. It's just, you, you kind of are almost hungry for it when you look at it now. Not many people would call Tom's second mystery building beautiful. It sits three blocks north of Union Station on Canal Street. It was actually designed by the same architectural firm as the ComEd building, Halliburton Root. But this one was built nearly 40 years later in the 1970s, and it's totally different. Tall, at 23 stories, it doesn't have any fancy details. And in the places you'd expect windows, most of the building just has this rough, grooved concrete that gives it an interesting texture. But then you look all the way up, and only on the front side of the building, the top looks like six floors have some windows up there. The rest of the entire building is concrete, ventilation. And so the question is, what is inside those, let's say, 18 floors of concrete concealed something? <laughs> we know the building was built by Illinois Bell, and now owned by AT&T. You can Google that. But like ComEd, AT&T doesn't want to chat or let us inside. However, we arranged for somebody to talk to Tom right outside the building. Oh, you're the man, huh? I'm the man. Okay. Somebody very familiar with this building. Well, I'm Nick Belandic. I'm one of the people that worked on this building. I was the structural engineer. If the name's familiar, yes, Nick Belandic is the younger brother of the late mayor, Michael Belandic. I'll give you a little bit of history of the building. Okay. When we started out, uh, the building was to survive severe hazards. At that time, the mood wow. of the country was such that everybody was worried about nuclear attacks and such. Yeah. Now, this building will not stand a direct hit of nuclear attacks. Right. But if the bomb were dropped a short distance away and the radiation occurred, the building walls would protect whoever was in it and the equipment. We had turbine generators up on the roof. so. This building would survive for at least two weeks. What was actually happening in the building, in terms of like it, the telephone? This there? building is nothing but a switching station. It is nothing but an equipment building. It was not designed for people. Right. It was except designed for, for equipment, except for the offices above, and uh, they're above the 21st floor. This hulk of a building may look dull, but in the 1970s, the neighborhood was at the edge of downtown, surrounded by industry, and in this case, the architects decided they're not going to dress it up. Tom thinks the texture of the concrete is part of the strategy to blend in. I think the point that Jen made about the fact that it has this textured concrete to kind of mimic the effect of a window makes it less obvious. If that didn't have that, it would really just be like this concrete monolith, which would really stand out. I think the building is trying to be anonymous. Yeah, I get that too. It's like, look somewhere else. Yeah. Nothing to see here. Nothing to see. Keep going. Keep going. The designers of our third building faced a similar dilemma to the AT&T building. But rather than making it anonymous, they designed it to be more welcoming along a busy retail district at State and Adams. You can actually walk into it. There's a CVS at street level and maybe five stories above that. It's hard to tell because like the other buildings, there's no real windows, just some round vents. And Tom says he's seen clouds of mist billowing out of the top 
and he's heard rumors about what's causing them. I was standing on that corner over there. There were two guys talking, and one guy said to the guy next to me, said, you know there's a nuclear reactor in that building. And I was like, there's no way that's true. And that's what really kind of got me, like, I got to figure out what's in that building. Well, I actually do know what's inside. Um, we created at the Architecture Foundation a science lesson on how this building works. Basically, it produces really, really cold water during the evening when the electrical rates are lower. And then it pumps that water mixture to the nearby buildings. Then it's used to cool the building, so that's what it does. N-Wave, the company that operates this chiller plant, that's what they call it, they have four other plants in the city that provide cooling for buildings that don't have their own air conditioners. And two N-Wave officials give us a tour. Thank you, Jim. It's basically a cold water factory, stacked in stories like an office building. Two floors are nothing but floor-to-ceiling ice and water tanks. This is like caving. There's a control room, a conference room, and a loud, I mean loud, pump room with compressors, engines, and these brightly painted four-foot-wide pipes. Blue, green, yellow, red. The N-Wave guys say their approach of using ice water to cool buildings is better cheaper, greener, easier than buildings operating their own air conditioner units. And rather than hide the plant, they would actually prefer if people could see in. Maybe they'd pick up a few more clients. So why does the building hide the work that N-Wave is doing? To answer that, we talked to the building's architect, Walt Eckenhoff, just outside. When he designed the building in the 1990s, he encountered this familiar dilemma. His original design actually included glass walls so people could see inside, but... Because of the nature of State Street being the great retail street, the surrounding hotels and retail merchants did not want an industrial building on their retail street. So we sheathed the building in an opaque material, being glass block and precast concrete, and created a little bit of mystery, so it's a little difficult to find out what happens inside. But Eckenhoff did want to offer a hint. There's some beautiful blue lights, linear lights, all the way around this. I don't know if they're still turned on or not, but when the cooling towers went on, the lights went on at night, and they were like a crown all the way around. The lights are still there in the evenings, a way of signaling, hey, we're making ice water in here. So we've seen three buildings hidden in plain sight, one that dresses up infrastructure in a glamorous outfit, one that aims to be nondescript and anonymous, and the N-Wave building from the 90s that's hinting. So, Jen, how do architects deal with this dilemma? What do they do with pipes and wires and machinery today? Well, it's changed a lot since the 30s, and the 70s for that matter. Designers and the public are recognizing that infrastructure is interesting. So, let's see it. Think about the exposed wires or pipes you might see in the ceiling of a trendy loft building. And a great large-scale example is the University of Chicago's South Chiller plant from 2010. It works like the N-Wave building, but everything is inside a glass box, so you can see all those brightly colored pipes and pumps. After seeing the insides of N-Wave's building, our questioner Tom Cole likes the idea of chiller plants or electrical utilities with transparent buildings. I really do think with, that they exposed you know, all those pipes to the outside, it would be great because you know, for kids who have to realize like energy just doesn't come out of the wall without somebody making it and there's you know, environmental costs and all that stuff. Would you bring your kids here for a tour? I would, yeah, yeah, I think they'd like it. 
Since this show first aired, Jen Mason-Garb has moved to Copenhagen, Denmark, and is a senior project manager for international visitors at the Danish Architecture Center in Copenhagen. You can see updates on her work and life in Denmark, plus haikus on her Twitter account, at jmasongarb. Support for Curious City comes from the Conant Family Foundation. Next time on Curious City, Philadelphia, Boston, New York. They all have world-famous Little Italy neighborhoods. Chicago, not so much. They see on the map the words Little Italy, and they'll go into the beauty shop and ask, where is Little Italy? And she'll say, you're standing in the middle of it. Putting the little in Chicago's Little Italy. That's next time on WBEZ's Curious City. Hey, I'm Sean Ali. I'm an editor at Curious City, and I want to mention a podcast you should check out. It's one of my faves. It's called Hello from the Magic Tavern. It's comedy, it's fiction, and it's a chat show. And in its own way, it's kind of Chicago. Now, the premise is that Arnie Niekamp fell through a portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into this magical world they call Foon. Now, instead of heading off on epic quests, he hosts a podcast and interviews adventurers, monsters, wizards, and the occasional talking plant. Arnie's co-hosts include a wizard and a talking badger. Past guests include Felicia Day and Travis McElroy, also WBEZ's own Peter Sagal. Now, FYI, there is some adult humor in the show, so this is maybe not for small kids. But if it's still your thing, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or check out hellofromthemagictavern.com. It's kind of like Cheers in Middle Earth, or It's Always Sunny in Narnia. See you there. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org slash curious. Thank you.